All right, so today we start a new chapter in our church history, if you call it that. We are going to begin chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Uh, for those of you that attended the, the midweek group, uh, I exhorted those present to read ahead the book of uh, chapter 12 of the book of Romans. So I won't ask who did it or who not, but uh, the Lord knows. So it's a reminder to be diligent, to read the word, right? Uh, a reminder that if we are to think that we are walking with the Lord, our nutrition, our intake is from the word of the Lord. Okay, so that's an encouragement for all of us. Okay, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We are beginning chapter 12 in the book of Romans. And today we will focus on verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 reads as follows, being the infallible and inerrant word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are sovereign. Lord, thank you that you are reminding us that you are seated on the throne this morning. Thank you that you have revealed this word to us, that we are learning about presenting our bodies as a holy and acceptable sacrifice to you. So we ask that your Holy Spirit gives us this conviction that gives us the strength to do so in order for us to follow your command. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The title for today's sermon is as follows. God's expectation for body, spirit, and mind. Today, in the first verse, we're going to focus on what God expects from our tangible body and from our spirit. Next week, as we go into part two, we're going to see what God expects of our mind. Up until now, the book of Romans has been very rich in teaching us theology, okay, Pauline theology, if you will. And it's a book that essentially teaches us all that we need to learn in order to know the gospel of who God is, how we are saved. And it has been a very glorious trip of this is who God is. God is holy. God is impartial, God is just, God is merciful, God is gracious, God is judge and will judge. God is sovereign over his creation. And more specifically, as we got to the last verses, to the last chapters, that God chose the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, in order to bring Messiah, to bring forth Christ, the Savior. Yet the Jewish nation rejected Christ. And in God's unsearchable wisdom, in his unsearchable ways, through the rejection of Messiah by his own people, it is that God grafted in all of us dirty Gentiles, if you will, right? 
that's a bit of what we can say about what we learned about God. What about us? We've learned that we are fallen. We live in a fallen world because of our nature and because of our choice. We are rebellious. We defy God. We suppress God's truth. And in some cases, God has actually given over those that reject him into a reprobate mind. Noticeably, Romans chapter 1 actually tells us that one of the visible ways in which man is given over to a reprobate mind is by involving in, approving of, and championing sexual deviancy. Does that sound familiar? What are we living through right now, right? So we see man's depravity in full display as compared to God's holiness. We've also seen that there's a plan of rescue that God has devised from eternity past. That he would save people, not by race, but by grace, through faith in the finished work of Christ. We've seen that anyone who is outside of Christ, without trusting in Christ, without the righteousness of Christ, is an enemy and is already condemned. We see that those who do trust in Christ, we enjoy communion with God. We have peace with God. We are saved from the wrath of God. And that applies to both Jews and Gentiles. We've seen that God, when it comes to humanity, to his creation, he has one people. It's not separate people. One people who is the true Israel. We are the true people of God those that are united in faith by grace in Christ. So then, out of what we've seen in the book of Romans today, let us consider, are you part of God's people? That's our first point of reflection today. Remember, it's not about race, and if we extend that, it's not about family, just because you are in a family who goes to church, or your parents, your grandparents, were Christians or went to church, it doesn't mean that you are. This is not in the family plan. Are you part of God's people? It is about grace. Have you trusted in Christ for your salvation? It doesn't matter your age. So then, for today, as we start chapter 12, which is the first verse, what's Paul's main point that we're going to extract? It is the following. Given what God has done for you, Worship him with your body and with your spirit. Okay? We're going to see this in three main headers. First, what God has done. Has God done something? Oh, yes, he has. We're going to see what he has done. That is the indicative as a fact of what God has done. Secondly, we're going to see what you should do. You are on the hook. You are not in the... Sidelines, you are not neutral. There is something that God expects of you. That is the imperative. And then we're going to see at the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate thing that God has done in order to have expectations and demands of us. Okay, so the first header, what God has done. That is the indicative. The first half of today's text reads as follows. Paul speaking says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. 
This first phrase, I appeal to you, it means that somebody is pleading, that someone is saying, please listen to me, I'm exhorting you, listen to me. So this morning, as Paul is appealing to his audience, my brothers and sisters, I'm appealing to you. I'm pleading with you, please listen to what the Lord is telling you, to what the Lord has done for you and what he expects of you. That is one of my prayers today for you. So Paul is saying, I appeal to you, meaning I'm going to tell you a command. There's a mandate that the Lord expects of you. But before giving you that command, Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and going to give an instruction, he reminds them of what God has done for them. And that is what we refer to in theology as the indicative it means, look at what God has done. That is the imperative. Based on what God has done, I'm appealing to you, I'm pleading with you to please do that. That's coming, right? And in here we see that as Paul is getting ready to give an exhortation, we see what the main diff one of the main differences, fundamental differences, distinctions that is very important between the true biblical faith and any other false belief system. Any false religion, any false spiritual belief system says basically, please go and do this, that, or the other, and then you will gain favor either from God or from a divinity or karma, right? Do this and you will gain such. With the God of the Bible, it's not, it's not as, as with the false religious systems. The God of the Bible says, look at what I have done for you. Therefore, obey. So then the point here is, Every unattainable false relief system says, let me put you to work so that you can work and work and work and never attain what you're looking for. You're never going to attain peace. You're going to fall short. As I've, as I've often said, that can lead to despair. I can't do it. No way. Go into depression and give up. Or it could lead to self-righteousness. Yes, I can do it. How comes everybody else can't do it? We'll put our blinders on that say, yes, I'm good and, and I'm going to please God or I'm going to please this religious system or this belief system and I'm going to do it. Self-righteousness or despair, both under self-deceit. And the reason why God doesn't need us to do anything for him is because he is self-existent. He is life in and of himself. He is self-sufficient. God is not dependent on us acting in order to then do something. We've been covering this in the Sunday school, the aseity of God. That is, he is from himself. He is not dependent. Acts 17, 24 and 25, read as follows. When uh, this is the preaching that is being given to the pagans and introducing them to the God of the Bible, the true God. It says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And brothers and sisters, God doesn't need anything from you. As a matter of fact, he's the one who's giving you the very literal breath that you're taking in right now. And if you're not giving allegiance to him right now, you're actually stealing from him. So then Paul is given here the anticipation of a command. But before that, he states specifically, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies, by the mercies of God. Remember the previous passage in which Paul went into doxology, praising God for his glorious wisdom. Right before that, he had stated that God has consigned everyone to sin in order that he would show mercy to all. The mercies of God. And then Paul goes into doxology, praising and worshiping God. So by the mercies that God has shown, has given and proved to them as Christians, notice Paul is addressing them as brothers. This is for Christians. He's addressing Christians. Which makes it all the more important. My brother, my sister, does God have expectations of you? He does. He absolutely does. But those expectations that the Lord has for each of us are to be met out of obedience because of what has done for us and not because you will gain merit or let alone gain salvation because now you're being good. No. You are to obey because Christ has saved you. Christ has died for you. While you were yet a sinner, an enemy of God, Christ died for you. So yes, there is an expectation of obedience. And we're going to get to that, exactly how, what that means in the second header. But for now, God has an expectation, yes. But that expectation is only because you are a child of God. And because obedience is expected from a true child of God. To the non-Christian, does God have expectations of you? Absolutely. You are also His creation. And that is the same expectation, which is the call of the gospel to everyone. Repent and believe in Christ. This also should be done based on what God has already done. He sent His Son to die on the cross so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For if you don't believe, you're condemned already. Because you have not believed in the name of God's only Son. The reason why you don't come to Him is because the light has come and you hate the, you hate the light and you love darkness. If you come to the light, your sins will be exposed. That's what Romans 3, I'm sorry, John 3, verses 16 through about verse 21 declare. What God has done and why some don't come. So the call to you is repent of your sin. Come to Christ. In either case, what the great news tells us is this. We are called to trust in God, in a God that does not depend on us. As author, and again, by God's providence, Matthew Barrett. I was reading him this week. Brother Johnny quoted him as well this, this uh, morning Sunday school. He said the following. He said, if God were a needy God, he would need our help as much as we need his. What good news it is then that the gospel depends on a God who does not depend on us. 
Imagine God telling us, okay, I have a plan of salvation. I'm going to save you, but I'm short-handed here. Like, you have to give me a hand if you want me to help you. That's not God. And unfortunately, some very well-intentioned churches preach that, that you need to give God a hand. God doesn't need you. God calls you to salvation. You will be saved. You will come to Christ when you are called Yelling, kicking, screaming, your family opposes, being accused of being an extremist, you, you're in a cult. I've been told all that, and it doesn't matter. The true calling of God is real in your life. You're coming. God doesn't need your help. Nevertheless, the call for you to repent and believe is still there. As a paradox of the gospel, God will do it, and he calls you to repent and believe. So what has the God of the Bible done, my brethren? Why should the commandment that is going to follow be heard and obeyed? A great summary here is given by the late John Gill. It says the following. Why should we follow him? It says, the abundant mercy of God displayed in their election, meaning Paul's audience, regeneration and calling, that which... Nothing can have a greater influence on a believer to engage him to holiness of life and conversation and shows that the doctrines of grace are no licentious ones, nor do they render useless precepts, exhortations, entreaties, cautions, and advice. Unquote. So what is John Gill here saying? God has abundant mercy that he has shown to every believer. And because those things are true, because the doctrines of grace are true, they should not remain in our mind, but they should make their way to, their, to our hearts so that we can be living out in holiness, so that we can be living out in obedience. Otherwise, the doctrines of grace will lead us to what Paul says may never be, which is, let me go sin, because grace is going to cover me. No. A child of God who understands God's grace will obey and engage in obedience and pursue holiness because of what God has done for us. He has given us mercy. He has given us grace. Okay, second header. So what should we do? What should you do? What should I do? Let's read the whole verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we see here the language of sacrificing to God. It's the concept of offering worship to God by means of sacrifice. This worship is in body and spirit. This is worship that is done in body and spirit and in truth, as the Lord Jesus said. John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Everyone worships. Yes, everybody. You worship self, you worship fill in the blank. That is spiritual. You're worshiping in spirit. But it must be done also in truth. If you're not worshiping the way that God has ordained to be approached, then your spirit your spiritual worship is in falsehood. 
It is a abomination to God. Now it talks about sacrifice. This is something that is presented to a deity for acceptance or rejection. This concept of coming to God with something is a way that someone should approach God. Now on what basis can man approach God given that God is holy and man is sinful? All right, because if we have learned that God is holy, we as fallen creatures cannot just come up and say, hey, hey, God, you're my homie. Let, let, let's, let's hang out. We'll snap you. God cannot tolerate sin. There needs to be something that mediates, that is presented between the sinful creature and God. We cannot go to him because we are fallen. This is why we need a mediator. So in the language of scripture, we see over and over, especially in the Old Testament, that God requires a sacrifice. A reminder that we need something to atone for our sin. The sinner needs a mediator. And the way that the Old Testament foretold the story of the one to come to take away our sin was through the sacrifice of animals. There's the first hint of a sacrifice made for sin goes all the way back to Genesis, to our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they disobeyed God, God declared judgment on them. And by the way, that disobedience of Adam is a disobedience that we all are tainted with. After that major incident in real human history, God did this. Genesis 3.21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So if God made garments for them out of leather, if you will, where do you get the leather from? You have to kill an animal in order to cover the consequences of their sin. Now, mind you, this happened because Adam and Eve had acknowledged that there was not that there was something wrong and what did they try to do they try to cover themselves but that didn't work genesis 3 7 what does it say it says then the eyes of both that would be adam and eve were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lying cloths a lot is represented there and could be said but all in all this is what is applicable to us. Where there is sin, there must be a sacrifice. What men can do on his or her own will not be enough. Adam and Eve try to cover themselves. Won't cut it. Will not cut it. God had to come, step in, make a sacrifice, kill an animal, and use the leather or the skin of that animal to cover them. God had to act. It was true then in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, and that is true today. A sacrifice is needed in order for us to come before God in spirit and in truth. This concept, all throughout Scripture, specifically in Exodus and Leviticus, this concept just explodes of offering and worship to God in, in that manner. 
In fact, one of the highlights of the history of Israel in the Old Testament is that God delivered his people from Egypt so that they specifically could, could go and offer sacrifices to him. We'll look at just one verse, Exodus 3.18. says, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the kings of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So this concept of the Lord delivering his people from Egypt, it was with that specific purpose, so that they could go and offer sacrifice to God. Now this verse says that we should present our bodies, soma, in the language there, soma. This is a person considered in both the material, the, the body, the physical, but also the immaterial, with the very essence of who we are. To present our entire selves as a sacrifice to God. Now we may ask, okay, so we're tracking here, but how can we do that? How we can present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God? Let me give you a few examples. First, physically, in person, we're doing that right now. Congregating on the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day. You're showing up, you're here. We are presenting ourselves physically. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 reads as follows. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are commanded, instructed to show up in body and also in mind and heart, spirit, to come and assemble together as God's people. Right? So that is primarily an example of how we can show up physically. And there's many other ways. I'm just choosing some examples. Example number two, how we could show up or be physically taking our bodies as a sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we read in Acts 17 that God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. Right? We are told in Scripture who made our bodies. We are knit in our mother's womb. Who knitted us together? The Lord. He did. And as we come from death to life, spiritually speaking, the Spirit of the Lord dwells within us. We are that temple. And as we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God dwelling in us, it leads us to our next example, which is now more physically and spiritually. First Timothy 4.8 says this, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now this particular verse should be humbling for two 
extremes of the spectrum of how we take care of our body and our spirit. Those who emphasize physical well-being over the body, but also those who emphasize only the spiritual aspect of our lives and our beings. For you that are consumed with well-being of the body, what you eat, how much you exercise, etc. The question is, should you be mindful of your health? Absolutely. You're taking care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, absolutely. That is of some value. But the question for you is, how are you doing on the other side? How is your spiritual well-being? How are you keeping up with your spiritual growth? And for those of you who are consumed with the spiritual growth and with theology, is that something bad to accumulate knowledge? No, it's not. It's good. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that that is of more value in the long run. But what does that mean? Does that mean that you should not be disciplined in taking care of your body? No, it doesn't. It's both and. So to you, if you fall in that camp, how are you doing in taking care of your physical temple that God has given you? Many times, especially as preachers, we can focus on the spiritual and have faith and repent and believe and read and pray, which is very important. Absolutely. And then what do we do right after that? We go and feast and we're gluttons, right? And, and nobody really mentions that. My brothers and sisters, that is also sin. I remember not too long ago where I had shared uh, the gospel with a friend of mine. And then he said that one time he was listening to a pastor and he said, but then I just tuned him out and I refused to listen to him and ask him why. Just because a man is fat and unhealthy. He has nothing to say to me. I was like, wow. He has a point. How are we doing? Taking care of the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is of some value, okay? And taking care of our spiritual well-being, it's both and. And whichever camp we fall in should bring us humility. The last example, presenting our bodies as a sacrifice, physically and spiritually. And it's also a warning. Romans 6, 12 and 13 says the following. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Okay? So this is a warning. It's telling us that we have bodies, physical bodies. It's telling us not to use our members to sin. That means with our hands, what we do, that is where we go, with your feet, that is with our eyes, what we see, what we take in, that is with our tongue. What do you be saying? Are you edifying or are you turning down? Now this is physical, but remember, 
this is also spiritual because our members sin only because we've conceived that sin in our hearts. And then we give the green light for our sinful desires to go ahead and manifest. And that manifests itself physically, tangibly. It tells us that we should use our members for instruments of righteousness. So how can I present my body as a living sacrifice? My brothers and sisters, edify with your tongue. My brothers and sisters, serve with your hands. My brothers and sisters, go and encourage someone with your lips, with your feet. Be the feet, the hands of Jesus in the local church. Build others up. Serve your church. Serve your family. Serve your wife, your husband. Serve your kids. So this aspect then of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice is presenting our entire selves. It manifests itself tangibly. We have to do. We live in a physical world. But it starts in the heart. And therefore it is spiritual. Because we can still be checking the box and saying, yeah, I'm serving. I'm doing this and the other. And your heart could still be hardened and in the wrong place. Or even doing those things out of legalism because you think you're going to gain a special favor with God rather than out of obedience. Now, this sacrifice, this doing of what God is telling us to do that we should do because of what he has done for us, if we are honest, it is something that does not come naturally. It, it is against our nature. It is something that it begins in our innermost being. It is a conviction that the Lord has to give us. Psalm 51, 17 talks about a sacrifice. It's an Old Testament, right? And it tells us that it's not an animal. It says the following. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What will God honor and strengthen you when you present yourself with a broken spirit, with a contrite heart, with humility? That type of humility does not come naturally to us. And when we experience that humility and we operate from that humility, it is a great advance to our sanctification and to becoming more and more like Christ. The great Jonathan Edwards said the following, Nothing sets a Christian so much out of the devil's reach than humility. Humility. When we acknowledge and we recognize our place, that we are not deserving, that we have been favored by God, that God has been so good to us, that leads us to sanctification. That leads us to good works out of obedience. That leads us to true, to true worship, to true servanthood, which is a word that Paul uses here. Latria in the Greek is the highest form of worship that someone can offer. When we do it with our entirety, not only with our body, but that true worship, if it is true worship, originated within our innermost being. It is spiritual. 
So then let us take a look at the ultimate sacrifice. I'm grabbing here from Hebrews 9, the second portion of verse 26. It says the following. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As we explore the Bible, again, there's allusions and there's explicit explanations of sacrificing. Exodus 12 talks of the Lamb of Passover. And there, obviously, is because of sin. The idea is that we need a substitute in order to atone for sin and be rescued from divine judgment. The necessity of blood. Blood needs to be shed, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we are told in Exodus that by the sacrifice of a qualified lamb, whose blood is properly applied in the household of the Israelites, they will escape God's judgment. So what can be said then of that concept of the ultimate sacrifice that has been made to God by God himself once and for all for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins? It's a recap of what has been said about Jesus in the New Testament. First, Mark 10.45 tells us that Jesus gives his life as a ransom. 1 Timothy 2.6 tells us that Jesus gave himself as a ransom. Colossians 1.20 tells us that Jesus is making peace by the blood of his cross. The Romans 5.9 tells us that we are justified by his, meaning Jesus' blood. Paul, speaking in the context of a local church at Corinth, issues an exhortation about executing church discipline. Again, another topic that a lot of people don't like to talk about. And Paul is telling them to purge sin, to get rid of leaven. Leaven is equated to sin. He says this, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, there it is, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Interestingly enough, the crucifixion of Christ took place during the Passover, blatantly fulfilling the real intent of the Passover. John 1.29 says this, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So then we see this picture of sacrifice. God requires a payment for the sin of those that are going to come before him in order for them to be accepted. The most significant indicative aspect of the gospel, meaning what has been done, is look at what Christ has done. He has been sacrificed tangibly, physically, as a real sacrifice to God the Father. It is because of that sacrifice that we are accepted before God. By having faith in Christ, His perfect work on the cross, His death, His burial, His resurrection, 
On that basis, we have peace with God. To spell it out even more clearly, the indicative of what Christ has done, he lived a perfect life, that we fall short, we can't do it. Jesus died on the cross, the death that you and I deserve. Jesus was buried and resurrected on the third day. That's what Christ has done. The imperative, what should we do ultimately? Repent of sin, believe in Christ. On that basis, we will be accepted. On the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God, then we will be accepted. So then, as we reflect today on what God has done, He has been merciful to us in many ways. That is what He has done. There is something expected of us, what we should do. It tells us here in our main text that we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And remember, this is not to do some sort of penance, like I'm going to sacrifice myself, I'm going to beat myself so that, no, that's not what it means. Not to gain merit, not to be accepted, but rather because we as Christians have been accepted by God already. And if indeed we have trusted in Christ, He is our sacrifice. On that basis, now we come to God with the sacrifice, with the offering of our obedience. If we try to come to God with the only sacrifice of our obedience, there is no sacrifice that can cover us because we are not perfect. It is not to gain favor, but it is to demonstrate obedience for what God has done for us. Did we track that? Yes? And what a better way to conclude this than with the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, which is today. It is a time to recognize that what we have done is only fallen short in our humanity, in our rebellion, but what Christ has done gives us the ability, the right to be called children of God and to therefore come to the table, those that are thirsty, those that are hungry, spiritually speaking, to come to that table knowing that we are loved, accepted, that we are God's children because of what Christ has done. Okay, so we'll transition to the liturgy for the Lord's Supper now.